Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast, episode number 240. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. We're brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Great to have you with us uh, this week as we uh, well wrap up the year on the podcast. Well, there's more time to go, but we're taking next week off our, our annual holiday break, but we'll be back with brand new podcasts in 2023. This time around, a couple of very interesting conversations for you. A little bit later on, our friend Bruce Pratt had a great discussion with the sports journalist Alexander Wolf, and we'll feature that for you from our downtown radio show. Up first, though, a fascinating conversation with a talented singer-songwriter who's been making great music for more than four decades now. He first made it big in America as the lead singer of The Babies, who scored a couple of top 15 hits in the late 70s, like Isn't It Time and Every Time I Think of You. Enormous solo success in 1984 with the international number one song, Missing You. And went on to success as a member of the supergroup, Bad English, who scored with a number of hits, including When I See You Smile. John Waite, still out there making great music, but like so many artists and performers, had a couple of tough years, unable to do what he loves because of COVID. And all of that is recorded in a really wonderful new documentary that's entitled John Waite, The Hard Way. We had a chance to talk with both John and the director of the film, Mike J. Nichols. Thank you both uh, for being with us this morning. John, you, you talk about it in the film. You come from working class roots. You seem to be a pretty humble guy. Was it, was it difficult for you to, to let filmmakers into your world? Not really. I think um, part of being a songwriter is that you're trying to transmit an idea or have a conversation with an audience or with somebody else. It's a very uh, open thing. And uh, if you ask me a question, I'll try and give you a, an, an answer, you know? I think there's an art to making the answer, you know? So it's all, it's all part of the same thing, really. It's the same experience. Uh, Mike would know more about that being a filmmaker. Uh, Mike, by the way, we had your colleague, uh, Andrew Slater. Uh, from oh, Apple wow. Canyon, which was great. He was on with us when that wonderful film came out. Uh, the title of the movie, The Hard Way, it's got, uh, it's got multiple meanings because you weren't able to make this film the way you normally would, but, but it seems like those limitations may be spurred a different level of creativity. You know, uh, Scott Wright had that title, and it was, it was one of the things I think it got mentioned about changing the title. It was one of those things where I was like, no, because it represents in a meta way. It's not only like it's a struggle to get through the music business. And then the way John does it is what I would say is much more of a difficult way, a, a different choice than a lot of other people would do. But then us making this, uh, choosing to do it at a time where you don't have everything on the table to make something from, there was nothing about this that became an easy way. So I just said, there's no other title than that because it represents everything. That's cool. John, I learned some uh, some really cool things about you. Uh, first and foremost, the influence of Marty Robbins, or, or certainly yeah. that uh, Gunfighter Ballads album yeah. cover that was an inspiration. Huge. I mean, being a little kid, uh, you know, five years old, we only had a black and white TV, but you'd get Champion, the Wonder Horse, and Gunsmoke and all this stuff. And obviously being an English kid 
and living on the edge of the countryside, it was cowboys and Indians all the way. You know, it was really serious, like ghost riders in the sky. I mean, that's an incredible visual. I mean, ghost riders in the sky, you know, this is on a five-year-old brand. And, you know, that went straight to the Beatles. Via Brenda Lee, Jim Reeves, <clears throat> The Pretty Things. Um, and almost simultaneously, Jimi Hendrix. So a lot of it uh, was American, and apart from the Beatles, but a lot of it was uh, American Americana. It was, uh, I was influenced by folk music and country more than rock and roll. So there was always storytelling there. But um, with Marty Robbins, you know, El Paso, Big Iron, you know, uh, this is serious stuff. This is great storytelling. Uh, and it's cinematic, you know, it's cinematic songwriting. I always point out to people if they don't know, too, that it was Marty Robbins who was the first to use fuzz tone on a I didn't record know that. with Don't Worry About Me. Oh, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah. A happy accident there. Um, because of that influence, was it even more important to you to have success here in America when you did yeah. with the babies? Yeah. No, I mean, any kind of success when you're 20, 18, 17 is major. Playing at any kind of a gig in a pub or in a, a hall, so a scout hut, you know, any anything just to play. But the, you know, the sword and the stone, the, the, uh, you know, the, the brass ring was definitely America to, you know, I mean, the home of rock and roll, the home of the blues country, cowboys and Indians, all the imagery and all the um, influences all came from America. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just this, in, I mean, England was, was black and white, as they say, very cold. Uh, there was no money. Everybody's kind of getting by. And you look across the ocean to America when you see it, and it's like Wrigley's Chewing Gum and Coca-Cola and Elvis Presley and Cadillacs and New York City and the Empire State Building. It's that the romance of it was staggering. It was so important, you know. Mike, I, I love a number of the things that you included in the film. I was especially moved, uh, strangely moved, by the fan videos of uh, fans singing John's songs. I thought that was great. It's, it, it's almost essential and fortunate that, you know, John still has all these fans who you mentioned, hey, um, can we use this? For, and they were so excited to share that stuff. You know, John, you said something a few minutes ago. And in the film, I tried to incorporate the idea of putting things inside of a TV because this is me from an outsider watching John's life as a like a latchkey kid watching America through a lot of television. And you said something about black and white and color, and I would try to move things and add more color to it as it went huh. along. It's just we never talked about this. That's not, it's just a perception of going through this that he would use not only perceiving music, but also just kind of a way to deal with people. Very much that gunslinger sort of thing that you would use with other people. Like if we got into an argument, it's not like there's, it was like you step outside and we're gonna do it this way, we're gonna do it this way. And I, yeah. I just, I love the perception that I added in, but I think it's really, thank you for sharing that because that was something I saw that we never talked about. You know, that's, that's a really interesting thing because you know, Marty Robin uh, on the cover, I think it's Marty on the cover, going for the gun. And there's this heroic lone figure, but there seems to be a point to everything. Like there's, there was 
honor or or rebels being outside the system but really literally sticking to your guns you know i mean it's like if you didn't you just go under a hail of fists you know i mean there wasn't really a a fork in the road you could take that was easy everything was was like swimming against the tide and you have that nature in the end of just putting your head down and going and some of the stuff that would stop the average guy you know you get up off the floor and you think well what am i going to do this is what i do i'm just going to keep going i mean it's it's not honestly a heroic or it's just in my nature i think when you see something that you think is the light you move towards it it's like a plant you know uh and that's that's the nature of making art you always you'll climb over a barbed wire fence to get to the next level uh, missing you which became such a, a global phenomenon uh, i was impressed to learn that came to you pretty quickly what about 10 minutes or so to write this song and is it surprising to you that a song about denial became so popular with people well that was in my nature i always try and make something uh with a twist on it you know anybody can write songs like baby likes to rock and um you know if elvis is singing it it's gonna have some kind of weight behind it but i i thought i mean i didn't know i was gonna sing those lyrics i just made it all up and um at the end when i sang i can lie to myself steve marriott had a song called i'm only dreaming that was the flip side of ichiku park i think uh see you walking down the street turn your head and walk away beautiful song and at the end he says i can lie to myself and i didn't intend to to steal his line we got to the end of the song and i'm just riffing on the melody and I just sang, I can lie to myself. It wasn't intentional. But obviously, the whole point of the song was distance and trying to get through. It was denial, uh, royal denial. It was like, really, you haven't got an option. You have to get through. You have to just straighten up and fly right. And it's a tough thing for a guy. But um, I can lie to myself. The whole song was magical. You know, I, I said before, uh, I can hardly take credit for it. You know, this guy, Chess Sanford, had the backing track and uh, we'd been working on some stuff and it just came along. And within 15 minutes, my life turned upside down. <laughs> Uh, the film is so great, and ultimately, it's about uh, it's about the making of art. And I, I feel like nothing captured that any better, uh, Mike, than the reaction that you got from John uh, when John, you were talking about collaborating with Alison Krauss, and that was such a powerful, poignant moment in the film. Well, it, like what I was going to say before, or what I I'm saying now, is that if I'd have had some input on the edit, or I could see it and uh, allow things and not allow things, it wouldn't have been the movie it's turned out to be. And uh, that's kind of an embarrassing thing to be emotional on a camera. You have nowhere to go. I couldn't even get out of the seat because I was hemmed in by the lights, but it was an emotional thing that came out of nowhere. And Alison has always been like um, an incredible artist and, and human being and uh, a lot of things, you know, a lot of it, the, the, a lot of the movie is just 
the truth. And I can't, you know, like Mike would know more about this than me being a filmmaker, but in my head, instinctually, I know that if you just tell people what's going on, the truth, they're going to look up from their cornflakes and go like, oh, great. And if it's like somebody on camera with a face full of makeup saying all the right things and talking about their new upcoming release, it's going to be drab every day. And I didn't want to be part of any of that. My music isn't about that. And what I do outside of music, I want to be that truthful. Well, it's a wonderful film. I appreciate you both making time for us. And I want to add to John, you mentioned in the film, Temple Bar, some of your best work. I couldn't agree more. I love it. Price of My Tears, one of my ah, all-time favorite songs. That means a lot to me because I get, I, sometimes I get that. People walk up and go like, man, Temple Bar. And uh, case in point, you know, I mean, that was my probably my best work. And two months into the release, with a giant single and a video made by Tony Scott and the, the, the New York's best musicians and me at top of my game, the record company fold. And what do you do? You know, what do you do? I mean, I, I made it. It's out there now. I bought it back. I own it. I'm proud of it. But I, you can't live your life thinking that you're going to always get lucky or be number one. I mean, you're going to keep going no matter what. I'm just so proud of Temple Bar, but that means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you both for being with us. John, Mike, it's a wonderful film. John Waite, The Hard Way. We wish you both continued success. God bless you. John Waite and director Mike J. Nichols. The film, John Waite, The Hard Way, available on several streaming platforms, and it really is a, a terrific look at, at an artist at work and uh, when, when they were unable to work. Take a little break. A word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, Bruce Pratt talks with sports journalist Alexander Wolf next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. here on downtown the podcast every wednesday on our radio show our colleague uh, bruce pratt does a wonderful sports lit 101 segment and uh, recently bruce had a chance to talk with the terrific sports journalist longtime sports illustrated writer and the author of a, a great book big game small world a basketball adventure which has been re-released for its 20th anniversary edition bruce pratt talking with alex wolf here on downtown alex welcome to the show Thanks so much, Bruce. It's uh, it's great 20 years later to be talking about this book all over again. Well, yeah, and I was trying to figure out why I missed it the first time around. And I realized I was probably, when it came out, I was in graduate school and just starting to teach at the university. And I guess I was busy because 
it's the kind of book that I love. I, I said to Rich off air, and, and I told him I would definitely mention it on here, it reminds me of the best of W.C. Heinz, the kind of sports writing that takes sports and then uses it to take us into a world that we don't know. And that's what I loved about each one of these these essays. But I want to know what was the real genesis the first time 20 years ago when you decided we're going to start to put this together. Boy, well, there had to be a globalization of the game. That process had to really begin. And boy, if you look in the early 80s, it really hadn't. Um, I remember the Phoenix Suns had some big Bulgarian guy for a season, but he got Stolichnaya elbow and got drummed out of the league pretty quickly. But um, by the by the 90s, 92, certainly with the Dream Team going to Barcelona, what happened the six, seven, eight years after that, and I got to take the measure of, was kind of the backwash from that wave, the Dream Team hitting Barcelona, and just the excitement around the world. And for a moment there, certainly among that young generation, it seemed like basketball had overtaken soccer. So by the end of the 90s, Jordan had had his run with the Bulls and won all those titles and... You could go to the most remote village in China and people there would be wearing bulls hats because of Michael. Um, there was something to write about. So that plus a book about soccer that I'd read called Football Against the Enemy um, by a young British journalist who's been with the Financial Times for a long time since then and written wonderful things about soccer uh, named Simon Cooper. And I read that book and said, yeah, now this is something I could sink my teeth into. Assignments for the magazine allowed exposure for me to some of these germinating stories, but it, it it took taking a leave of absence to hit the road and do this. Well, in the new edition of the book, it point you point out that in the 2021 Olympics, there were 53 players with NBA experience playing for non-U.S. teams. And when I think back to when I first started watching basketball with Oscar Robertson and Bob Cousy and the like, uh, I don't think there was anybody except maybe a Canadian or two that had snuck in the league. When what do you think besides Jordan and the and the intelligent way that the NBA has marketed itself worldwide, what else makes it so this game so appealing in remote places? Well, remember within ten years after it was invented in eighteen ninety one, by the early nineteen hundreds, certainly by nineteen ten or twelve because the game had been invented at a training school for missionaries, these missionaries took along with their Bibles, Naismith's original 13 rules all over the country. The game was in China, literally, um, by the mid 19, well, 1905, 1906. And in fact, Naismith loved to collect stories about all the far flung places people would see hoops. And then Mao came along and you had the cultural revolution, but he'd already been exposed to basketball, didn't think it was this insidious Western influence. So hoops got a pass. And that happened in so many other countries. Um, I think the simplicity of the game, it's easy to throw a hoop up in a building or in a, in a schoolyard. It's just such, such a simple game. Even in countries where soccer would remain the preeminent sport, the infrastructure for people to play it, once they got a, a glimpse of, of Jordan, uh, for instance, through satellite TV, it was there, and that and that kind of helped the rocket fuel. One of the earliest uh, essays uh, in the book, and, and it just it blew me away. I've been to Springfield College and to Kansas University with the Sport Literature Association, and I've been to the Naismith sites on those campuses, and I've read a lot about about Naismith and and seen 
and her papers. But Duck on a Rock was not anything I had ever heard of before. And if you could, if you could just sort of explain that and explain how that 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 led you down other Naismith paths, that'd be great. Well, the great Naismith pilgrimage, which uh, you haven't done, most people haven't done, and I felt really fortunate to finally be able to do, is to his birthplace in Ontario. And there is a boulder there, um, the original rock on which the duck on a rock was played. So um, kids in rural Canada would take a small rock and put it on a huge boulder, and then they would go find even smaller rocks that they would throw at that rock on the boulder. And the idea was you were trying to knock the rock, the duck, off of the boulder, uh, hence duck on a rock. And there was a little element to the game where you had to retrieve the smaller rock you threw at the duck uh, and try to go back to some sort of home base before you know a certain amount of time elapsed or beat your opponent back to home base. But in playing duck on a rock, Naismith remembered there was this kind of optimal arc that you always sought to achieve where you balanced kind of force with accuracy. And you and I can sit here, you know, 130 years later, or whatever, and see the brilliance, the sort of optimization between those two, two um, obligations and how that applied to the perfectly arching jump shot. So in this all-nighter Naismith pulls in December of 1891 in his office, where he has to come up with the rules for this new indoor game, this is going through his head. So his rugby training up at McGill, where they would have to run through the gymnasium and toss underhanded a rugby ball into a carton on the ground. And then Naismith had the brilliant idea of, oh, we need to elevate that goal in order to keep the, the physicality of rugby at bay. And that was the, the great problem with rugby in those days was how violent it was. So you just see how all these ideas were percolating in, in Doc Naismith's head. Well, the other thing I found fascinating was that um, Naismith had to do up his original 13 rules and he sends it to a woman in South America and she misinterprets some of his diagrams and we end up with that early version of women's basketball. That's right. The three, three offense, three defense, never shall a woman pass midcourt for God forbid her, her tender sensibilities right. be violated. Um, and, and to me, even more amazing is that that persisted certainly in the state of Iowa, well into the sixties and maybe even the seventies, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, boy, when you watch the WNBA today, if you watch Cindy Blodgett just not so long ago in your great state, um, you know, you never believed that people thought that way once upon a time. Or that my grandmother and my wife both played under those rules at different times. When my wife was in high school in Rhode Island for a brief period of time. They had, they had that. There's a, a wonderful book by Lydia Reeder called The Dust Bowl Girls about basketball, early basketball in Oklahoma and where missionaries brought brought the game. And I always think of... I always think of that when I th when I think of these rules and I think about Title IX and everything that's changed and how basketball has changed, which means it brings me to another one of the chapters, and that is the chapter about Shelley Pennyfather. I, am I saying that correctly, Pennyfather or Pennyfather? Pennyfather, you got it. Pennyfather. Yeah. Um, that was was perhaps as remarkable as any. Um, her story. Um, that a, a very good college basketball player who decides to become a cloistered nun with um, with the, the poor the poor Claire's 
Could you talk a little bit about about that for our readers? I really want people to, uh, I, I want everybody to buy this book. So I'm trying to throw every angle to get them to buy it. Um, so P- P- Shelley Panafather wasn't just a, a really good player. She was the best college player in the country in 1980. I want to say it was 86 at Villanova. She won the Wade Trophy, the Heisman and women's basketball. And she came from a very devout Catholic family. Um, and in the several years after she finished her, um, finished her time at Villanova, where she was you know, Big East player of the year, who knows how many points she, she scored, she had the opportunity to play professionally in Japan and made a very handsome living there. Uh, I think she played three seasons and she'd come back in the summers after having spent a fairly lonely time as a, a mercenary overseas, um, feeling kind of directionless. And she actually knocked on the door of uh, a place up in the Philadelphia area. She grew up in Northern Virginia, but she went up to the Philly area where she knew that the order that Sister, um, I'm sorry, Mother Teresa had been working with and uh, volunteered herself. And she caught Mother Teresa's eye because she was six foot four. Um, And uh, she ended up going through a lengthy discernment process that led her to believe that she was called to be not just a a nun, but a cloistered one who devotes the entirety of every day to to prayer. and none of her friends, these teammates at Villanova, her family embraced it, but but friends had a really hard time ex- accepting it. And um, her coach, Harry Pareto, was kind of torn, but because uh, he was a devout Catholic too, and was kind of in awe of, of this wonderful former player of his, the decision that she had made. But she's still there. Every 20 years, her family's allowed to give her an embrace at the renewal of her vows. And um, since this book came out more than 20 years ago, there's been another uh, moment where the Penafather family has been able to to go and see Sister Rose, as she's now called, and Harry Peretta, her her coach at Villanova, too. So it's it's just one tale in the game, and I try to use her story as a way to get into basketball and and kind of the beyond. Um, yes, I was able to write about the game in Japan for that's where Kelly Shelley played, but there was also this this kind of mysticism of the practice of the shot. She was a fabulous shooter. Um, and just kind of the limits of of how someone, even as as adept at the game as Shelley was, there were limits to how much it could satisfy her. And she found this other path. Well, and I wanted to talk about that because the, the, the part of the book that, that moved me beyond belief was the parts of the book in the Balkans. Um, I remember being on a train in the summer of 1969 in Yugoslavia, then Yugoslavia, and the four Yugoslavians asking me, who were sitting across the way, why in American football is the big peel all the time on, on ground? And then when I figured out he was saying pile, I started explaining American football to him as best I could. One of them said, but I don't understand in America why you hate people. There are people you hate, black people you hate. In Yugoslavia, no one hate. We love everyone, Serb, Croat, and, and, and you're telling me this wonderful story and how Tito has made everything together. And yet the vicissitudes and the, and, and the bloodletting in the Balkans is some of the most, for me, horrifying stuff I, I've, I've, I've ever heard of. You write about a group of guys that were tight and they were different and they were from Yugoslavia and they, they weren't all from the same religion. They weren't all from the same ethnic background that end up 
that war ends up sundering those friendships in a, in a remarkable way. And I was wondering if you could if you could spend some time describing first of all how your original embrace of these people and their and meeting them and like was it and what it's like to think about that today. Yeah, um, boy, there's so much in there, Bruce, to yeah. to revisit to unpack uh, the. Really, the very first international assignment I got at Sports Illustrated was before the 84 Olympics, and it included going to Zagreb to see a um, to report about Yugoslavia as a potential rival of the U.S. Olympic team um, in advance of LA 84, but also to, to catch, because I happened to be there at the time, the final of the Yugoslav League between Red Star Belgrade and Sabona Zagreb. So the, the two big rivals, one Serb team, one Croat team. I got a little exposure to it. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of Americans, you kind of keep an eye on the news, but you don't quite understand when you see in the early 90s that this country is coming apart, what's going on. And and actually, it was pursuing a lot of the reporting in the two chapters about the Balkans, um, which originated at the European Championships when the country had fallen apart and Croatia played the rump of Yugoslavia, which was essentially Serbia at that point. Um, in a U European championships game. And then the Croatians walked off the podium rather than stand there alongside the champion Serbs. Um, and I used that as a way to sort of talk about, gee, back in 1987, as juniors, uh, in the World Junior Championships, you had Dino Raja, you had Vlade Divas, you had um, players of all, Tony Kukoc, all ethnic backgrounds from the former Yugoslavia playing as a United Yugoslav team. They were great friends. Um, all made their way to the NBA, but why could they suddenly not play together? Why was simply fraternizing on the court something none of them would engage in because we were afraid the games being beamed back home would show them doing that and their families would get reprisals as a result. Um, and the, the irony of what you were hearing in that train compartment back in the late 60s uh, is that, you know, maybe in Tito's Yugoslavia, these differences didn't mean anything, but they were only being papered over. And all it took was a strong man to play on those ancient ethnic differences and surface all this stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say, I did write little codas to each of the chapters to try to update readers on 20 years is a long time. And one of the things that did happen in, in the intervening 20 years is um, Divats and Kukoc participated in something called Basketball Without Borders, which was a FIBA and UN and NBA joint effort to bring, uh, to go into conflict areas and try to use basketball to build bridges. And um, yeah, that's a small step. Things like that have been tried in the Middle East um, yeah. with middling success. But um, there was just so much poignancy in that whole story. And I hang a lot of it on this one coach I had become friendly with. Um, a Serb, but a native of Sarajevo, and thus someone, um, Svetislav Pesic is his name, someone who was just appalled at all this. And he had been the coach of these juniors. He had been the coach of Kukoc and Oraja. And when these guys were teenagers in total innocence, and the idea that some sort of civil war was going to test their friendship and, and bring about the destruction of their country just seemed the farthest from anybody's mind. So... Um, it was the real world where the real world intersected with basketball, and I really wanted to explore it. Well, I don't suppose there's any place I would less likely have thought you would have traveled than Bhutan. 
um, to to see if you could play a one-on-one against or in a pickup game against the king. That that was that's a, that's a fabulous story. And as someone who who has studied Eastern religions and stuff when I was in college and know a little bit about that culture, I was amazed to think, wow, they're really into basketball there. They're they're really into it. Um, the royal family is particularly into it. But if you've studied that culture, you also know it's very hierarchical. Um, The king of Bhutan is a deity in the particular strain of Buddhism that they practice there. And the idea that some Westerner would simply swan into the capital and expect to show up on the doorstep of the palace and challenge the king to a game of one-on-one, I probably violated every possible protocol in, in their culture. Um, but it was a fun conceit to use uh, as I went there. You know, how can I get this audience w- with His Majesty? And in the course of just failing at that, <laughs> I heard so many wonderful stories about how the NBA had penetrated even this fortress of a kingdom in the Himalayas. I mean, the uh, the king had the Bhutanese mission to the United Nations, gather up all these videotapes of NBA highlights and send them to a diplomatic pouch so he could enjoy them with the royal bodyguards. Um, so I, I filled my notebook and I was able to write it up as just kind of this uh, futile chase, but, but there was so much fun to it um, that it was worth every moment. Well, I cannot tell you what a great privilege and pleasure it's been to talk to you today. And I want people to go out and buy Big Game, Small World, a basketball adventure because we've been doing Sports Lit here for eight years, and we always say a book that's about sports and so much more is the book you want. This is the book you want, and you can get it for someone before Christmas if you go out there and get it today. Alex, thank you so very much for being with us, and we hope we can talk to you again sometime soon. Thank, thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate spending the time with you. Take care. That was great stuff there. Bruce Pratt talking with sports journalist Alexander Wolf. the reissue of Big Game, Small World, A Basketball Adventure. Hey, that'll do it for us this week on Downtown, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Again, we'll be off next week, but we'll see you in the brand new year with a brand new edition of Downtown.